Welcome to Life Together, a podcast for Gresham Bible Church, where we exist to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. I'm Mike Dahl, and with me today is Josh Howith. How's it going, Mike? Good. Today, we're going to talk about communion. So we took communion for the first time in a long time on March 14th when we gathered for our baptism service at Mountain View. So we wanted to use this time to walk through that together. So we as a church are on the same page about what communion is, why it matters. So in our conversation today, we're not going to cover everything, but hopefully it's helpful. So Josh, what are some things that come to mind as we enter this conversation and then we'll kind of unpack it together? First thing that comes to mind is what did you think of the juice and the bread that we were able to have at the March 14th meeting? Uh, if I was going to give it an Amazon review, it would be a one star less than stellar, and okay. Jesus's body should taste better than that styrofoam cracker. I don't think it yeah. had any taste. No. Yeah. It no. broke really well. The whole body broken for you. That was pretty dramatic. <laughs> you actually yes. snap it, but... What, did, what what kind of elements did you grow up with? Were you a grape juice upbringing? Were you a wine upbringing? A, like a loaf of bread or like the yeah, saltine cracker? Like what was your upbringing? Everything but wine. Wine okay. was a no-no. Yeah. Uh, so Just there the Welches. Were, yep, it's the Welches. That's what wine means. So it was Welches grape juice, did some bread, did some crackers, that whole thing. So yeah, yeah. how about you? Uh, same. Yeah. I actually really loved the crackers. They were delicious. So as a kid, I probably took more than I should, but yeah, I even had people at one point we were, we were no wine as well. So uh, I I even had somebody try to argue at one point that grape juice is actually more pure, you know, that, Mm. um, the wine of the Bible is not alcoholic and Welch's is more pure because it's just the grape and it's very compelling. Well, (laughs) Welch's is very organic, you know? So anyways, yeah. I've since changed. It's yeah, good. But yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so, excited for upbringings. today's conversation for our church, but also, yeah, we all bring different experiences and backgrounds to communion. Yeah. So, yeah. You want it to taste good, kind of. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. I apologize for the uh, quality of the elements, but for COVID, it was the best we could do. Yeah. So no, that, there you go. That makes complete sense. It won't be a permanent thing. Yes. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I hope it can be better than that going forward. Yes. But yeah. yeah. So Josh, help us think about kind of why do we even do communion? You know, for those that have grown up in the church, it becomes familiar at some level, but maybe for others not, or newer to the faith, hey, why do we actually even do this? What's this all about? I think, number one, we take communion because Christ has told us to do so. Mm -hmm. He said, as you know, as often as you, you know, we should do take this cup and the bread, and as often as we do that, we do that in remembrance of him. And so we were instructed after his ascension, to commemorate and remember his death and resurrection through the taking of that meal. I mean, the most significant thing that's ever happened on the face of this earth is his death and resurrection. It changed the course of history for all of humanity. And so we want to do this, partake in this meal that he has instituted for us, that he first instituted on the night of his betrayal with his disciples. And so every time we take it, we're remembering this really happened and it matters for my life. And it's something that we need to remember because we so easily forget what he's done for us and the impact that has on our life. And so, number one, Jesus told us to do so, to continually remember that he died and that he rose. And so that's where I would begin. But yeah, what comes to your mind? Yeah, that's so good. So just trying to think about different 
passages of scripture, so we we ground ourselves there. Hey, what is communion? Why do we do it? First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty eight come to mind. I'm just going to read it for us. So this is God's word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So just thinking about the reality of communion, what it represents, what it points us to, how often we're to do it until he comes, just it helps us lean in and experience the true story, the greatest story ever told of the Son of God coming to earth. And yeah, just the beauty of communion is what I want to call to mind. For me, sometimes I grew up in the church. I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Came to saving faith in Jesus at a young age. So some things over time can kind of become familiar or rote. You don't want it to, but if I'm being honest, it can. So we just need to ground ourselves in what is the actual reality that we're partaking in. That's really good. Yeah. That's good. How about for you, Josh? Any particular scripture verse that comes to mind when you hear communion that you'd want to orient us around? Yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, one that maybe isn't the first one we go to, but I think back to John chapter 6, which is a big turning point in Jesus' ministry. He has the crowds following him. He's growing in his popularity in that sense. And then he feeds them, you know, the 5,000 miraculously, and then he, John recalls that he walks on water, and then he has this moment where he teaches this crowd and talks about himself as the bread of life. And when he does so, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me, or you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Famously afterwards, the crowds left. Like, man, this is really hard. And And then that gives way to one of my favorite moments in the Gospels where everybody leaves except the 12, and Jesus says, are you going to go away as well? And Peter says, where else will we go? Mm -hmm. I have nowhere else to go. Only you have the words of eternal life. And so I think that's important to bring up in the conversation of communion because Jesus is before even, you know, that night of Passover, the night of his betrayal, he's talking about these things. He's pointing us to what that meal really is all about, that when John the Baptist saw him out the river, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. And we have this last and final sacrifice. No more sacrifices will need to be made. Christ has made that sacrifice. And so when we think about what that meal then represents, that having life, we're remembering that we're taking this meal, and there is no sacrifice that I can make to make myself right before God. But Christ has made that, he's that that last sacrifice. Mm. And it is finished. He finished paying for the debt that I owed. And so that backdrop, I think, makes the communion meal just go from kind of black and white to color for me, at least, you know, from 
just audio to visual, you know, kind of thing. Like if we could right now go from audio to seeing you in all uh, of your glory, Mike. Uh, you know, I'm so be, sorry, everyone. That's kind of, yeah, <laughs> that's right. yeah. So, uh, but no, I think that really does color it in a way that's really important because mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to say, what okay, what does this mean? You know, but at the end of the day, we're talking about Jesus saying it is done, yeah, it's finished. Amen. That's so good, the Lamb of God. So yeah, yeah. So I know you shared some when we have taken communion again for the first time in a while as we gathered for that evening baptism service, maybe for those that weren't there, or maybe it just didn't click or register all the way. Could you walk us through briefly, you know, why as Gresham Bible Church, why have we not partaken of communion? What is that pointing to in regards to the nature of communion and what it actually is? Kind of to flesh that out a little bit. It's been hard to refrain from it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's not because I don't want to take communion every week, and that's not because just trying to be mean or something. And I actually don't want to put too much of it on me either. It's It's been an elder decision. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about what communion is, we've searched the scriptures. There's quite a few. I mean, some that we haven't even read, like Matthew 26, Luke 22, where Jesus actually institutes that Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 mm-hmm. through 22 as another important one. And you've read one from 1 Corinthians 11, and then we have the places in Acts where Lord's Supper is brought up again. And when you read all these passages, it's very clear that this is not a thing that I partake in that's just me and Jesus. And so it's 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 difficult because this meal that we are taking, and I'm going to keep calling it a meal even though it's not going to fill you up in the sense that another meal <laughs> yes. will, but it is a meal in the sense that it is it's weighty and significant in and of itself. And... But it, it's a meal that represents that Christ's body was broken for us, Christ's blood was shed for us, and that us is really important to remember. I, I believe it's in First Corinthians 10 or in the passage that you just read where Paul tells—I think it's in the passage you read—Paul says, wait for one another. Mm-hmm. And the reason he says wait for one another is, is not because we're supposed to all take it at the exact same second. That's not his point, and some churches have inter- interpreted it that way, and that's not—I don't think that's what that passage is in- insinuating. But he's talking about the fact that people have come and they've taken communion. They've, they've eaten a lot of the food, because even back then in Paul's day, people would have an entire meal— in the course of having that communion element as well. And people are coming and they're they're eating everything before the other people who maybe haven't gotten off work yet, you know, they're showing up later and others have already taken the meal. And he's, he's basically saying you need to wait for another. And the purpose is because of what it represents. It represents that we are one body, that mm-hmm. as Christ's body was broken for me, I'm united to the body of Christ. And this meal represents the family that I'm now a part of. And so I said it on Sunday, I said it in a different blog post write-up, but it's that idea that as I take this bread, I drink this cup, I'm proclaiming Christ died for me. But as I see you do that, I'm remembering he died for you too. Amen. And so that, that image of the church taking it together is significant. And so to push it out into everybody's homes where I can't even see it eaten by anybody else, the cup not drank by anybody else, it kind of loses that sense of of communalness that it it, it, it represents mm-hmm. in and of what it is. And so we've refrained from it for that reason because the church hasn't been able to gather in a way where we could say, whoever is able, come, and yes. we can all be together. And so last Sunday we were able to, to do that. Yeah, which 
puts color onto the move for us as a church family and moving to Mountain View, a larger right. space where we can all gather, we can be consistent with the nature of what communion actually is in the pages of Scripture, because as a church, we want to seek to be faithful based on God's Word. So yeah, I know I've missed it, you've missed it, our church has missed it. It has not been a small thing to come to that conclusion over this really last difficult year. We've had all these other losses, and then on top of that, not taking communion. But I personally have been ministered to by that because it shows the seriousness of it. And as a church, we want to be grounded in God's Word and not just what we think or what's comfortable or you know what we've become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. So as we're talking about communion, let's just make sure we're all thinking about it the same way and kind of unpack it a little bit or take all the parts, you know, take it apart and then put it back together. So who is communion for? We think, and it seems clear in the scriptures and just to the nature of what it represents, communion is only for believers. Yeah. So it's for those who have professed faith in Christ that they know that they, you know, by God's grace, been saved through faith in Christ. Because again, when you're taking that meal, you're not just saying, I believe this event happened in history. By taking that meal that bread and that cup, you're saying, I believe this is for me, that Christ died for me. Mm-hmm. And and so that picture is representing that. And so it's clear that it's only for believers, and that's not because... And, and so when we say that, that non-believers shouldn't take the communion meal, we're not just trying to be people that are excluding others for the sake of excluding people. That's not a mean thing. It's just an obvious thing. It's a logical thing. Yep. Because why would you take a meal that says, I believe Christ died for me, and I'm proclaiming this is true until he returns, if I actually don't believe that. If I haven't received Christ, if I don't even think I need his, you know, his shed blood on my behalf, it makes no sense that I would take it. And so, so it's for believers, and I'd say if, although the Bible isn't clear on it, it would at least be logical that it would be for baptized believers. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say that someone who hasn't been baptized can't take communion if they have faith in God. It just wouldn't make much sense because baptism is kind of that first thing that you do. It's the You only do it once. So we only have these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism you do one time, and that's you do that when you become a Christian. And communion is that ongoing ordinance that you and I participate in on an ongoing basis. And so if I'm regularly taking the Lord's Supper, if I'm taking communion on an ongoing basis because I believe Christ died for me and I haven't been baptized, I don't know why I haven't been baptized, you know. And so I just need to get baptized because that's the first step in that obedience of following Christ. He tells us to be baptized. And even in the Great Commission, we're going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You know, that's kind of that first step. So so we would say being a baptized believer makes the most sense. And if you're taking communion and you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you strongly to get baptized. Yeah, I, I appreciate the posture of our conversation. We're going back to Scripture, right? What are the patterns of Scripture? What are the principles of Scripture? What's clear? And then we want to live faithfully in response to that and think about communion. So again, to the beginning of our conversation, hey, what's your experience been? We kind of all bring that. We just take and take and run with that mm-hmm. rather than taking two steps back and like, all right, what is this about? What does Scripture point to? And make sure we're, we're clear on that. Right. How about what would you say or come to mind if someone says, okay, Josh, that's all good. How often should we take communion? What's just some counsel or guiding principles that come to mind for you there? Similarly, I think to what we would say about 
encourage people to be baptized first, even though the Bible doesn't give out a law about that. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense what they are. When you look at Scripture, the Bible doesn't tell us how often we should take the meal either. And so you would never look at a church that does it once a month and say they're wrong. You can even look at a church that does it once a year and say they're wrong. I'd say you're missing out. Yeah. But at least when you look at the example in Scripture that we see in Acts, it seems in those sort of descriptive places that we have in the book of Acts, which is, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of what was happening, right? Luke writes as a historian in that regard. But, you know, we have Acts chapter 2, after that huge conversion of thousands of people after Peter's sermon, you know, on Pentecost, we get to the end of chapter 2, and it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And so they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we, we have all this, and there's, and there's more that's to be said there. But even that idea of breaking of bread comes up twice. Yeah. And that's not just saying they're having lunch or something. You know, <laughs> I think that's there as well. But it's it's because it repeats itself too. It seems like this is just regularly what they're doing. And then Paul, or we we learn about Paul at the end of Acts chapter twenty, or at the end of the Book of Acts in Acts chapter twenty verse seven, it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. And so again, that first day of the week, that's the day Christ rose from the dead. That's why Christians have historically worshipped on Sunday mornings, because Jesus, they went to the empty tomb Sunday morning. He wasn't there. He was risen. So churches have gathered on that first day of the week in the morning. That's what they're doing there, and they're told that they're breaking bread. Mm -hmm. So again, that's that communion meal. So we see it in that way, at least descriptively, it's happening a lot. It's not just once a month, once a year, but regularly. And again, it's, it's, there's not a clear line on how often we should. We should, we should just take it as regularly as we can in that way. Uh, that would fit into the guidelines of, of us treating it as we should, but there, there isn't a clear line on it. Yeah, that's good. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I just love when you really look at what Scripture has to say about communion. It just reveals God's heart and how good and how gracious and generous He is towards us. Like, God knows we're forgetful. My family knows I'm at the uh, lead of the pack on forgetfulness, right? I'm forgetful. I need to be reminded. So why wouldn't I be want to be reminded more often than not? Like, when I gather with God's people, I need to be reminded of who Jesus is, what He's done for me. He's coming back. Yeah, so there's principles there that I think guide it. Probably more than less is a good pattern. So yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And our church, I mean, we've we've done it weekly. Yep. Right, and that we have no intention of of changing that. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to taking it every week is a high value of ours, because one, just one thing alone, it makes the gospel visible. It's something every single week where we are confronted again that that this. Is true that Christ really died and was risen, and so we're in, in a very visual way we're reminding ourselves of that. So yeah. yeah, so help get us ready. So think about you know in the future we're gathering at Mountain View. It's a larger place where as a church we can gather together, be the church, partake of the elements, be reminded of what we've talked about. 
what are some other things you'd kind of prime the pump for us as a church to be thinking about communion and gathering to kind of get us ready? Like for me, this feels like I'm anticipating a big game and I can't wait. And so to kind of help us anticipate what this is going to look like, feel like, those things we should have on our mind as we kind of reestablish these patterns and habits of partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Yeah. Sorry, what are you asking me? Oh, no, I, I, no I, I'm, I, I'm asking you. So we're moving to Mountain View. We're going to be taking communion more regularly. What does that mean? What things should we have on our mind? You've said it makes the gospel visible to us every week. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what other things is that about? What benefits is that going to bring us as a right. church? What, as a Christian, it's an incredible reminder every week of the humility of my Savior, hmm. His greatness, and my own need for forgiveness for the grace of God. And so as I consider taking the bread and the cup, I, I it's hard for me, and even if I am prideful, I, I shouldn't be. It confronts my pride. And so it's actually, it makes it difficult to be a prideful person if I'm really considering what I'm taking. That that. God himself has sent his eternal son to take on human flesh and die for me. I mean, that being confronted with that every week, my need for God's grace, my need for his forgiveness, the reminder of what he went through for me is so needed in my life. Uh, you're talking about that forgetfulness. I mean, how easy from hour by hour, minute by minute, do I slip out of that understanding and back into a sort of performance-driven way of living, or I need other people to respect me and, you know, whatever it is, kind of. And so it's an incredible reminder for me as a Christian about how I'm even made right before God, who I am, and and all that. But I also also think it's an incredible reminder for non-Christians. I know that when you get to that communion meal, if you're not a believer, we talked about it's for believers, it kind of feels like you're excluding people. And again, that's not the point isn't just to exclude people. We're not trying to be mean or something. That's not the goal. It's not my heart at all, and nor anybody's. But if I'm a non-Christian and I've been able to sing these songs, hear these words, talk to people, even put my kids in kids' ministry, you name it, you can do everything. But when when we break out that communion meal, I'm once again confronted like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm... I don't believe this, or should I believe this? You know, what is this about, really? You know, what are we about here? And so I think in a really healthy way, it gives pause to the non-Christian who potentially could feel like, because I'm just showing up, maybe I'm a Christian, maybe I am just as much a part of this thing as everybody else. And it kind of, in a good way, reminds them like, oh no, you you need to receive Christ. You know, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from whatever God you've been worshiping and turn to the one true God and give him your life. You know what I mean? So I think in a really good way, it's a blessing both to a Christian and to a non-Christian to kind of humble themselves and, and realize in a sober sort of way, where do I stand before God? For the Christian, I'm once again reminded my standing is right before God because of Christ. And that should humble me as a non-Christian it should humble me to do some self-examination a little bit. Man, well said. What comes to your mind? Yeah, so there's so much with communion. I'm excited for all those reminders as a 
Christian, I love your emphasis on here's what it proclaims to the non-Christian. That's a blessing and a sobering reminder of a call to confess and repent and come to Jesus. So, and also thinking about communion, I know, again, people's different experiences and backgrounds, etc. There's a lot of misconceptions, you know, if you look at through the lens of church history and even today. So for me, with misconceptions of what communion could be, uh, it was probably my own issues in my past, or maybe mm-hmm. some influence of certain movements or points of emphasis, but it was kind of more about me than Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it was like, hey, I got to be right with God before I come. That's kind of the whole point, <laughs> is to be yeah. reminded I'm made right with God because of Jesus' prefer perfect performance for me, not my performance for him. So there's this either or and both thing going on where I am to examine, test myself to see, hey, where's God's grace working in my life? Does my life look like I actually believe when I'm about ready to proclaim together? But if I make communion kind of about my religiosity and my goodness, like, oh, I can't take communion this week because I was short with my kids on the way to church. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great time for me to confess that, repent that, talk to my kids about it. Exactly, in that moment, seek that reconciliation, then enjoy the meal together that we're made right with God because of Jesus. So, so many things we could talk about communion, but that family meal of it, it does help us in a gospel-focused way live in light of this reality and not just make it about us so absolutely yeah any thoughts for there for you along those lines or misconceptions you want to bring up and misconceptions i mean i around the idea of misconceptions i mean there i think it's probably worth saying that there's three different historical ways that people have viewed the lord's supper Mm -hmm. we're using those terms lord's supper and communion interchangeably at least i do some people really hold to one use or the other I probably lean more towards using the word communion. That comes out of my mouth more because it emphasizes the communal element of it. My communal relationship has been made right with God through Christ and with other people through Christ. So there's a communion we experience through this meal. But as the Lord's Supper, he instituted the meal, so both are accurate. But Catholics, you know, which was really the, the only church for, for many centuries, have a what's called a transubstantiation view of the Lord's Supper where they believe that through the priest's prayers and, and, and such things that the meal actually becomes the literal, you know, body and blood of Christ in some some way. So, and then coming out of that through the Reformation, Luther rejected that view and has had a consubstantiation view. So there's some who are Lutherans in that way. Consubstantiation meaning that it's not literally the, the body and blood of Christ, Christ's real presence, you know, indwells those elements. And then Zwingli was around that same time, and he drew out this memorial view, which is what a lot of evangelicals, I'll say, mm-hmm. uh, probably hold to, which is what where GBC, how we view the meal, that it's not that Christ's presence isn't in the elements in and of themselves, but it is a memorial view that we are remembering Christ. We don't want to downplay, you know, the soberness of the meal, you know, I wouldn't want to just be tossing around like loaves of bread, you know, after service to whoever and just them eating it. I mean, not that we wouldn't say that's like sinful or wrong. It's just we want to treat the meal with, you know, the sobering nature that we probably should. But it's not literally Christ's body and blood. It's not like his presence is somehow infused in the bread, mm-hmm. so to speak. But it's it's bread and it's a cup and it symbolizes something. And so there's been different misconceptions based on your background, I think. Those those things come to my mind a little bit. Yeah, that's good. It's so helpful for us to kind of look back 
look ahead as a church, hey, we get to do this together again. Man, praise God for that. Looking forward to it. And those that still can't gather when we start to gather again at Mountain View, you know, let's be talking about that. Reach out to the elders. I know Josh and I just visited a bunch of people briefly. We want you to be connected to your church family as members of one another. So this is an important conversation. I hope it helps get us ready as a church for taking communion together. Yeah, yeah we're going to start taking it together again um, April 11th yep. when we first gather in Mountain View again. And the goal is to do that weekly once again. And so We'd love to be able to get those elements to anybody who is more of a shut-in because of COVID right now. And so, so yeah, we just want to be sensitive towards all those people and, and just let those people know, especially that we're, I'm thinking about them all the time, you yeah, know, amen. and so grateful they're a part of our church family. And so we want to continue to kind of give those elements to them as best we can. So they can either, you can either come by the office and pick them up from us at the office, or uh, we're happy to deliver them to you. So that's great. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today on Life Together. We'd love to hear from you with any questions you have about this conversation around communion or comments or, as always, any feedback that you may have for us on this podcast. So you can do that by reaching out to me at mike at greshambible.org. Until next time, thanks and have a great week.